The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. COVID-19 comeback. U.S. stocks tumble with virus threatening the economy. And U.S. cases are up 1.6% as Arizona hospitalizations, hospitalizations jump. We'll give you the latest on everything that's going on with regards to the pandemic and House Democrats, or Senate Democrats, rather, blocking the GOP police bill. Josh Wingrove, Bloomberg White House reporter, will give us all of the download on the White House, Congress, what's going on with that. And plus, my exclusive interview with former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the former Democratic presidential candidate now advising the Biden campaign on U.S.-China trade policy. We dive into what a Biden White House would look like for U.S.-China relations. Joe Crawley then reacts, the former New York congressman and Democratic caucus chair, will talk all about the primaries from last night. And we end the show with a friend of the program, Matt Gorman, vice president at Targeted Victory and former NRCC communications director. Is it over for Team Trump? That New York Times poll, 14 points, he's down. Or can he make a comeback? Mac Orban's going to give us the latest. Lots to get through. Great show today, folks. Buckle up. We're going to check in with uh, Pete Buttigieg coming up uh, just in just uh, a few minutes, to be honest. So stick around for that. We talk all about U.S. and China trade policy. U.S. stocks slumped 2.6% today as investors grew anxious that the resurgence in virus cases in multiple states will hamper the economic recovery. This according to the Bloomberg Terminal. We should also note that the IMF came out with a report today that actually uh, tweaked some of the, the forecasts that they, economists at the IMF had been predicting uh, for 2020, the global recession deepens. They say that the global uh, that that the outlook for this year will worsen. This because of the economic data from all the shutdowns around the world. But 5.4 percent global GDP growth in 2021. And we should note this because this the IMF says this, and I, and and I think it bears repeating. This could be upgraded for this year if there's a significant medical breakthrough, or Business activity resumes more quickly. And I go back to what Dr. Anthony Fauci said yesterday uh, in Congress, which is that he is cautiously optimistic that a vaccine be in the U.S. market by the end of the year. You know, you got to you got to look at all the different signs. Uh, so 
that's where we are. Joining us on the line with someone who has all the signs on what's happening inside of President Trump's White House, Josh Wingrove. He is Bloomberg White House reporter. Josh, how is the administration recalibrating given the uptick in cases in Arizona, Florida, and Texas? Well, they're not really. I mean, we really haven't seen them address it. It's been two months since that coronavirus task force did a briefing. We've been told that they won't be doing public briefings anymore. But I think President Trump is going to have to respond. In particular, you've got sort of Republican allies in Texas and Florida, governors there who, you know, been pretty supportive of him dealing with these outbreaks again, Texas in particular of a massive outbreak today. And so, you know, he, the president just kind of wants the economy to reopen, but also isn't really encouraging the steps that would facilitate that, like, you know, mask wearing and all that kind of thing. So we really haven't seen them change tack yet. So do you think that there's going to be pressure on them to change? I mean, we've all seen the reports in terms of how uh, Europe might have to uh, adjust some travel restrictions on the U.S., uh, as well as quarantining for two-week periods for some states. Um you know, where do you see that happening? Yeah, it, that, the European report, I think, was a little sobering, right? The U.S. doesn't want to be seen as a laggard, of course, but it continues to have this persistently high caseload. We had something like 35,000 cases in the U.S. confirmed yesterday. That was the second highest total ever. Now, of course, we're doing a lot more tests than were before, but still, it's, you know, it's not coming down in the way that people had hoped. And so, yeah, you're seeing these sort of internal uh, restrictions within the U.S., the president himself is poised to maybe run afoul of them because uh, New Jersey wants people who've been to a handful of states, including Arizona, to quarantine or self-isolate for two weeks. Uh, and the FAA is sort of signaling that the president plans to go to his uh, his Bedminster Golf Club this weekend. So, you know, we're uh, <laughs> everyone's taking it one step at a time. But the, the key message is that, you know, no one, we aren't, you know, the world isn't through this. The U.S. in particular has a pretty significant footprint still of this virus. And I should note that Dr. Fauci is a tad on the optimistic side. Other health experts are pumping the brakes a little on how quickly that vaccine will be available. You know, I, that's what I said. I, I mean, I'm glad I'm not the only one because I was saying this on Bloomberg Surveillance to Tom, uh, Lisa and John uh, all throughout the week and Francine as well. You know, I was struck by the optimism coming from uh, Fauci's testimony uh, on Capitol Hill, um, uh, especially about that, about that, uh, about the vaccine. Uh, this is economists, including Bloomberg economists, are suggesting there be a stepped-up recovery come Q3 or Q4. I do want to note something that you alluded to, Josh Winger, Bloomberg White House reporter. Uh, reading from Bloomberg News, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut will require visitors from virus hotspots to quarantine for 14 days, two weeks. The move comes as Florida and California both set daily records for new cases, while Arizona reported a new high in COVID-19 hospitalizations. That's the second time I couldn't say that word. Texas governor said that the state has a massive outbreak. So Texas now is dealing with this, Josh. These are battleground states. Do you think that this is going to play as a local issue of local Democrats and local Republicans, or are we living in such a nationalized election cycle that this is going to be all pinned on Trump? I think it's, it's a great question, but uh, yeah, I think some of it is being pinned on Trump because Trump hasn't seen the polling bump that a lot of governors and even even leaders in other countries have seen. In other words, 
you know, voters across the world and across the states have been saying, you know, giving their leaders the sort of the benefit of the doubt as they try to contain this virus, that Trump really hasn't had that. And so if they start attaching him, obviously that's going to have consequences. Arizona is arguably one of the, you know, top handful of swing states in the country. Florida, of course, as well. I mean, if, if Texas is in play, that's really bad news for Republicans. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to see where it goes, but we're really seeing almost like the first wave hitting in places that it hasn't really hit before. I mean, we've been talking about this for months. Of course, New York and the sort of area around New York City was by far the epicenter of the virus early on. The curve has really come down there. We're seeing other places, particularly in the Sun Belt and across the South, really start to hit what is essentially their first curve. And, and you know, I think part of that is probably being driven a little bit by the weather. We always thought there, this would slow down over the summer, but if it's too hot, people stay inside, and air conditioning helps this thing spread. So, uh, you know, I, I, we have a summer reprieve hasn't been there. All right, let's pivot now to uh, a story that you wrote on the Bloomberg Terminal. Excellent reporting from Josh Wingrove. From Bolton to Mattis, Trump faces aides-turned-adversaries. As President Trump's battle for re-election heats up, he faces an unusual and potent foe. A raft of former top aides and cabinet members, including John Kelly, James Mattis, and now John Bolton, who have turned against him. How is this going to impact the race, Josh? I'm reading from your report. Well, I think we're going to see a lot of attack ads. They're going to use the words of the president's own, uh, you know, cabinet figures or supporters or aides against him. You know, the Democrats, in other words, don't need to put themselves on TV criticizing the president. They can put some of his own circle. Now, Bolton, of course, his claims have been uh, rebutted by many people in the president's orbit who remain very supportive of him. For instance, that claim on China. They, you know, Bolton said, look, yeah. the, you know, President Trump asked China to buy a bunch of agriculture to help him out. So, you know, people are saying, yeah, he wanted them to buy agriculture, but I don't know if it's that explicit. So we'll see. But, you know, Mattis, Kelly, all the way down, you know, to the sort of early on folks in his orbit, like Omarosa. These are people that were I remember that. the president, and they've left, and they've written books, and now they are critical. I think we'll see them, uh, they'll have a crossroads this year. Do they want to be, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden ad, or do they not want to be in a Joe Scaramucci, Biden remember, don't that. forget Anthony Scaramucci. Um, yeah, Scaramucci is, he is staunchly uh, against the president right now, and is, and is is among the group of Republicans advocating for the president's defeat. Uh, and uh, one of the former VA secretaries that we write about actually attended a Joe Biden fundraiser last week in New York. So I, I think why this matters, folks, is because it's why we're not seeing Joe Biden on the campaign trail. You know, when I, when I speak to sources on the Biden campaign, they say they want to turn this into a referendum election. They don't want it to be yep. a choice election where it's between joe biden and president trump they want it to be a referendum you know you're not they don't want it, it it's not that you're voting for joe biden it's that you're voting against trump and that's how they plan on win winning independent voters at least now that's the thinking inside of biden world but josh wingrove bloomberg white house reporter you know i, I think back to the 2016 cycle when the trump campaign in many ways did a very similar strategy in terms of attacking Hillary Clinton on the emails. And in every, you mentioned attack edge, I totally agree with that. And beyond that, when you've got six to eight million people tuning in to see Martha Raddatz on ABC News interview John Bolton in the first exclusive interview that he gave, that in and of itself is essentially a half hour attack ad. And I think the, the re-election campaign, you know, it, it has got to figure out a way to push through this. Have we? Do you think that they are close to figuring out a way. I mean, the New York Times poll has him down 14 percentage points nationally amongst likely voters uh, that just came out this morning. Um, 
nationally to Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to, for instance, uh, you know, try to define Biden, right? Their their whole way to deflect these polls has been, look, our polling shows that President Trump is competitive, which is a different word than winning, competitive against <laughs> Joe Biden in swing states where, when he is defined. In other words, we got to throw some stuff at the wall and see what's going to stick. But the, the president hasn't really been able to change gears and get out of his own way. We've even seen some Republicans sort of you know, speak out uh, about this. And so I, I, I just don't, you know, what we've been looking for is a change in signal. If the president believes he's down, you know, will he switch approach? Will they change themes? Will they ramp up attacks? You know, I will probably more likely with the president, they'll go more on offense than not. But we, we really, really haven't seen that. And today at the White House, he hosted a Poland's president. It was essentially a greatest hits album. They talked about stuff that they talked about before. Interesting from that, though, is that Poland's president asked President Trump to back off a plan to pull troops out of Germany, U.S. troops out of Germany. On the flip side, Poland's president also appears to be leaving the White House without a guarantee of what U.S. troops will be put in Poland. So, uh, you know, uh, the president appears to really be sticking to script. So whether it'll be 2016 all over again, I think time will tell. But right now, Joe Biden's got a bigger lead than Hillary Clinton had through much of that campaign. So any sort of, you know, polls were wrong, then logic is, is strained by the, by the just sheer scale of that lead. Josh Winger, Bloomberg White House reporter, appreciate the time and, as always, appreciate the excellent stellar reporting. Let's dive into what a Biden presidency would look like on foreign policy. That's where I began my conversation earlier today on Bloomberg Television and Radio with someone who has become a central pillar as part of the U.S.-China relationship in a potential Biden presidency. His name is Pete Buttigieg. He is the former South Bend mayor of Indiana and a former Democratic presidential candidate. Here he is. The reason that China wants a second Trump term is that everything about the chaos and division in this country uh, under President Trump plays to the competitive benefit of China. For example, one of the strongest things that we have going for us, the United States, in competition over values and interests with China is the strength of our alliances. Uh, We have a network of global alliances that has been generations in the making. China's most notable alliance is probably with North Korea. And yet today we see the American president systematically dismantling our alliances one by one. Meanwhile, we saw how the president was really taken advantage of by China when it came to uh, trade deals. Uh, We see that uh, it is highly unlikely that any of the export expectations are going to be met. And the so-called phase one trade deal left most of the important issues from currency to intellectual property off to some mythical future date. Meanwhile, the president's also made it clear that his silence could be purchased. He was uh, so desperate to curry favor with Xi Jinping uh, that he was silent about uh, Hong Kong uh, aspirations for democracy and uh, not only silent, but by some accounts encouraging They came to concentration camps in Xinjiang. Uh, In area after area of the competition that is going on between the United States and China, it's very clear that the Chinese Communist Party would rather see a continuation of the chaos and the division here at home that we've come to expect under President Trump. 
It's not just Wall Street that has been injected into the uncertainty surrounding the U.S. and China trade relations, but also farmers as well as Main Street. And if should Biden beat President Trump on November 3rd, would the U.S.-China phase one deal be thrown out the window and would it have to be started all over? And if it does, are tariffs going to be a part of a, of a negotiating tool that the United States uses? Well, you're right that it is uh, American farmers and also manufacturers and all of us as consumers uh, who have so much at stake in a better policy because the tariffs that we saw, uh, really uh, uh, the, the brunt of that came down on, on us, the American people. By some measures, typical American household paid $800 more in costs. And uh, I got to tell you, in my part of the country, uh, right here in the Midwest, where both farming and manufacturing are extremely important. Uh, we just can't take this continued beating that's been going on. So uh, what you can uh, be confident of under a Biden administration is that future negotiations will happen with a view toward putting American workers and farmers and manufacturing first, and that he won't hesitate to speak out about American values, like our commitment to democracy, that have really been sold out under this administration. Remember, uh, in a future President Biden, we'll have somebody who understands how to strengthen our alliances, to strengthen our negotiating position, understands China, because he has been dealing with the likes of Xi Jinping for a very long time, and understands that the best way to compete effectively and to have better deals has to do with our own competitiveness. It means making the investments right here at home that are necessary in everything from education to infrastructure for us to not only hold our own, but to be in a position of strength when we are engaging with, competing with, and trading with countries from China to the rest of the world. Well, how do we make sure that Xi Jinping is actually going to follow through on his commitments? Because if you look at agricultural purchases, if you look at what's been going on in Arkansas at the Tyson's plant, and regards to a lack of transparency regarding COVID-19 through the World Health Organization, how do we make sure that the Communist Party of China, Mayor Buttigieg, is actually following through on their economic commitments and their transparency commitments on global health? Well, first of all, we've got to be realistic about our ability to shape their ambitions. And I think that is something that uh, in the past U.S. foreign policy has struggled to do. Uh, you mentioned transparency, and there are certainly challenges in terms of Chinese management uh, of this health crisis. Obviously, uh, they need to be held accountable for that. Uh, but that's exactly why we shouldn't be turning our back on the WHO and allowing China to have even more influence there. Uh, we should be doubling down on American public health leadership. You got to ask yourself, why did President Trump praise the transparency, the transparency of the Chinese regime early in the coronavirus pandemic? I think it's because he was negotiating from a position of weakness, and you're not going to see that under a future President Biden. Uh, it, it is clear that this president has been manipulated, has been fooled, and has been rolled by China. You are not going to see that with somebody who has the experience that uh, future President Biden will bring to negotiations and to foreign policy because he's been able to see how the Chinese regime right. operates from his position in foreign policy leadership for decades. I got two more questions for you. The, I want to come back to something you said earlier with regards to Europe and building coalitions around the world, because you've got a president right now who has uh, uh, articulated himself as an isolationist and contrasted with a de the, the presumptive Democratic nominee, more saying that he wants to bring about more of the coalitions. How do you do that while also ensuring that Europe, Europe doesn't take advantage of the American worker? 
Well, there's no question that our interests are usually aligned, but sometimes in tension with any trading partner, including our partners across the Atlantic. But what we know is that we're going to be much better off if we're on strong terms with countries that share our fundamental values. Look, again, I'm from the heart of the so-called Rust Belt. My city was built on auto manufacturing. And we saw in this part of the country firsthand the consequences of what happens when trade deals are made that don't take into account the needs of our region and the needs of our workers. The answer to that is not isolation. The answer is not to put up a wall around a status quo that's long gone anyway. The answer is to make sure that we have our front foot forward and we have enough interests and values shared with Europe, including our commitment to democracy, our commitments to how markets should work for the benefit of all, uh, and uh, uh, our historical alliance that we should be able to work through any of the tensions, whether it's over uh, individual trading issues, technological issues, or others in the service of the broader goals that we clearly share. But only if we're actively tending to these alliances, not lighting them on fire at every opportunity. That was former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the also former Democratic presidential candidate, talking about what a Biden administration would look like with regards to U.S. and China policy. Now, I also asked him about who he thinks President or vi- former Vice President Biden should select as his running mate. He says that uh, diversity could be a crucial, crucial role on the ticket, especially in terms of bringing about uh, a more diverse cabinet for a Biden administration. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Coming up, we check in with Joe Crowley. Joe Crowley, the former New York congressman, to size up how progressives did last night in the primaries. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for uh, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joining us on the line, someone who is a Bruce Springsteen fan. His name is Joe Crowley. He is a former New York congressman and the former Democratic Caucus chair how are you, Joe? How are you doing in these times, these uncertain, turbulent times? <laughs> I'm doing well, Kevin. Uh, it's, uh, it is crazy times. It's been a while since I've been on with you. <clears throat> I think this, obviously this has contributed to it. Um, you know, I'm up here in New York, and it's a beautiful day, um, but everyone has a mask on. I mean, everybody has a mask on, and it's just uh, remarkable. It really is. Did you see Bruce Springsteen's interview with David Brooks in the Atlantic, I did not. I know that Brooks is a big fan of his. I'm gonna, yeah, that. I'm gonna text you that because it's okay. it's really really something where he gives a playlist for the Trump era 
a Bruce Springsteen playlist for <laughs> the full playlist is on Spotify. Hey, here's a plug. Hey, Barat, I'm about to plug the show. You can go on Spotify and, and, and listen to Bruce Springsteen and Kev Cirilli. Yeah, the Bloomberg Sound on show. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Joe Crowley. If you had to pick a song by Bruce Springsteen for 2020, what would you, what would the what would the Bruce Springsteen uh, soundtrack be for for the for everything we've been through from January first to June twenty third, twenty fourth? Today's the twenty fourth. Sorry, go ahead. I don't even know what day it is. I'm going to nuance it a little bit. When he um, he was doing a number of songs um, acoustically, he borrowed a song from Stephen Foster. Uh, and did an incredible version of it called Hard Times Come Again No More. Yeah. And I think that's uh, hearkening back to the mid-1800s and what they were suffering to economically in the and, and the throes of our country. And um, I think we feel the same way today, that these times that we're experiencing, that they pass us and, and they don't hit us again. You know, I was I was thinking it would be my hometown. You know, I always think of that. I always think oh, there's about so many. I mean, there's so well, many. I, I, I mean, think, I think factory would be great right now. Yeah. You think of all the men and women who have lost their jobs. I and, know. Uh, uh, they'll give anything even for those difficult jobs right now. I think uh, knowing the routine and uh, as hard as those lives were, they gave people value. They, you know, as you said, it gave, gave them life, you know, and, uh, the work, just the work, and the working, the working life, you know. Okay, but so I think a lot of folks. Yeah. But I'm an optimist, and I'm going to say yeah. "Better Days" should be on this playlist. I don't care what part <laughs> you're in. "Better Days" is a great one. That's what I listen to whenever I need to get myself out of a funk. I said, "Mom, if you ever want to get me out of a funk, just give me a good song to listen to. I love a good yeah. song. You know, I don't listen to yeah. the sad stuff. It's how we get down. Yeah. You got to turn on the the power stuff. You know, you got to feel good." Especially well, these days. I think that's like, you know, you hear like, you know, Born to Run. It's very optimistic, you know? Yes. So as much as Bruce can bring you down and he can be reflective, he also had that power of really turning things. The promised land is about the promise. Yes. You know, uh, it, it, and the promise itself. What a great tune, you know? So there are so many. Even the river. It brings <laughs> it down, but it talks about life as we know yes. it. You know, like real people. And, you know, as bad as, as tough as it is, they find value in each other, even though they made mistakes along the way, you know? We listened to Jungle Land, my sister and I and my brother-in-law on the way down uh, from uh, from Baltimore on the radio when we were driving down 95 to get back down here. All right, I could talk, Bruce. This is, we got to gotta go to politics, buddy. We no, got to pivot. No. I know. I got Barada in the chat rolling her eyes. She's like, you're off topic, buddy. Rain it in. Rain it in. You know, they critique me. I got to stay on message. So... <laughs> Oh boy! Uh, Join the okay, club. Join the, the, club. I, <laughs> the primaries last night. What'd you think? Come on, give us the lay of the land. What happened? Well, I mean, there were a lot of in, in, really uh, very interesting outcomes. I, I, I think you look at especially the Elliot Angle uh, Bowman race. Uh, you know, they had the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. How often does that? How often does that rest in a New York City member's hands? And that's gone. I think you couple that. It looks like it's, I mean, I shouldn't say it's gone, but it looks as though that's the case. You come with the retirement of Nina Lowy, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, the retirement of Joe Serrano uh, from the Bronx. He's a cardinal on the uh, on the Appropriations Committee. He's the chair of the, uh, the Commerce, uh, I'm sorry, the Justice State uh, Subcommittee, very important uh, committee. Um, look at Carolyn Maloney, you know, really hanging on, the chair of government operations. 
you know, in government reform. So it's uh, it was quite a night, uh, and not for the incumbent, and not for you know the seniority uh, that that New York City is. Uh, we, you know, you, you expect to be some fruits from that, but. That will not be the case, it looks like. You know, so it's really a remarkable night in many respects. So, um, and Beck Clark uh, really barreled through. I think that she had a wake-up call, obviously, two years ago and really distanced herself from, from her then uh, opponent again. Uh, but you look in Queens, it looks as though three incumbent members of the Assembly uh, up in Westchester. There are two, in, uh, two incumbent members of the Assembly. They're in very tight races. They're trailing right now after the... Uh, the vote count yesterday. So it really was a remarkable year for insurgents, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, those really hearkening from the far left. You know, I, I want to ask you a policy question, especially with regards to the Engle race, because I, I, everyone is talking about this. Oh, what does this mean for the progressives? And what does this mean for centrist Democrats? I want to ask you a foreign policy question. What does this mean for U.S.-Israeli relations? It's a great question. Um, Elliot uh, himself on that, on issues pertaining to Ireland, you know, the, the, the historic uh, Irish, uh, you know, crowd up here in New York has yeah. looked to Elliot in the past for that support as well. But I think particularly when you look at the retirement of Nita Lowy, very strong advocate for Israel, and Elliot Engel here, uh, I think it was a severe blow uh, to the uh, Israeli government um, writ large. Uh, I think uh, if you look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's positions, um, the positions writ large, but not, not necessarily blanketed, but I, 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 I can't speak with knowledge, but fairly writ large um, from the Justice Democrats um, that uh, uh, are not as pro-Israel, I guess you could say, or more pro-Palestinian, uh, maybe more a polite way of putting it. So it is a sea change in many respects, I think, for the New York delegation and maybe for Congress, too. Wow. What I, I mean that that's just absolutely wow. Uh, Joe Crowley's on the line. He's a former New York congressman and former Democratic caucus chairman. Uh, we're talking about the the primaries. We're talking about uh, uh, twenty twenty. And I, I caught up with Pete Buttigieg earlier today, and he was talking about the U.S. China uh, what that would look like under a Biden presidency. You know, you know this. I mean. Pete, Pete's emerged as one of the advisors to the to the Biden campaign on geopolitics, on international trade, and whatnot. Given his background, uh, but but I want to get you to weigh in on this. It, it, does Biden have to be putting out sort of his vision or his team on these on these types of issues, or does he just gotta make this a referendum election? I think in many respects, you know, um, it, you know, when 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 your opponent is is is, is shooting himself in the foot, you know, don't get in his way. And um, uh, maybe that's the wrong analogy. I'll try to come up with a better one. But you know, really, when when, they, when your opponent is failing, you know, stay out of the way. Let him just let him fail himself. I think that is that may be part of the structure of, the, of their campaign right now. I do think he's going to have to have those positions. And I think, as a former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate, his experience there, that he's going to he already has a developed um, notion about that. Um, I, I think it's going to be a more mature uh, relationship. Um, you know, I think uh, China and the United States uh, kind of need each other in many respects. Uh, I do think there's going to be really more of a refocusing towards uh, onshore and, and nearshore uh, in terms of uh, reliance on China, that we're going to move some of those factories, and, you know, especially when it comes to PPEs and other things that were in short supply during this crisis. 
uh, that that has really changed in, in many respects our relationship. Uh, but I do think it's going to be a, a mature and a, um, you know, not, not this haphazard. I don't think we'll be going to trade wars with China. I don't think that'll be the, I don't think that'll be the goal. All right. Joe Crowley, always great to catch up with you. Um, is the family doing all right with all this? Oh, doing well, Kevin. My, my son, Colin Tom from the Naval Academy, he's been with us for three and a half months, and wow. it's been an incredible blessing. So it's been awesome. I'm happy for you. All right. Joe Crowley, former Thank New you. York Congressman, Bruce Springsteen fan. There it is. Born to run. <laughs> Gotta love it. I'm just, I'm just, this is, I'm just gonna let it USA. play. Born in the USA. Born, born in the USA. Oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Uh, I'm just gonna let it play. More next. Mac Gorman. I'm Kevin Cerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. You know, some days I think I should have been a disc jockey. You got Oasis, you got Bruce. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I always liked Carson Daly. I used to watch TRL. Joining us on the line, Matt Gorman. Matt, it, Matt, do you like Carson Daly? Did you watch TRL? I I did watch TRL. I did watch TRL every day in the Times Square studios. Give me your... <laughs> My mom loves, loves Carson Daly. She always tells me, why can't you be more like Carson Daly? Mom, I'm trying. Matt Gorman's the vice president of Targeted Victory and former NRCC communications director. Matt, I was talking with Joe Crowley about what Bruce Springsteen's song would define this year so far. Go. Oh God! Uh, shoot. Um, oh, that's a good one. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Right? I don't know. All the right. Answer right you now, have you have like five yeah, minutes, but by it. the I'll end think, of this segment, I'll think about it. you're yeah. getting the same question. Yeah. All right, Matt Gorman, what went on today with Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, and police brutality? I mean, look. I think what you're seeing now is I'm I'm concerned. You know, with this blockage, Democrats blocking this bill. Uh, you know, they, uh, Schumer wanted something on the floor by July 4th. They did it, uh, and now they're blocking it. And they, they want to play politics with this. Um, and, and I worry now that this is, will not be will – not, will not get anything done. I mean, we saw this last weekend out in Minnesota, okay? Minnesota, the state where George Floyd was killed, right? The left had their bill in the state legislature. Republicans, who have the majority, wanted to compromise. They had their bill. Tim Walls, who's the governor there, a Democrat – and the left wouldn't hear about it, and now there's nothing done. And it's too important for that to happen in Minnesota. It's certainly too important for that to happen in Washington. All right, so Senate Democrats blocked Republicans' proposal to overhaul policing practices in America, contending that the measure is too meager to respond to the surge in protests against police brutality and racial inequalities and leaving Congress at an impasse for now. This according to Brandon Lee's reporting on the on, from Bloomberg government. So... You know, but but where do we go from here? I mean, is this because it, it doesn't advance out of the Senate? Is this now a, a is this issue over, or is there? Or do you, or when you talk to Republicans, do you think that there's still a chance for for a resurrection? I, I don't think so. I think this was a chance. I think if we had the ability to get Democrats at least debating it, I think we'd probably get out for it. But right now, it's a stalemate. There's no. It, it's only going to atrophy the interest. And the desire and the political will after July 4th, right? Like that is that is why 
um, everyone was so urgent to get it done by then because or get on the floor by then because you had that momentum to keep it going. I'll be honest, I feel like, you know, we're talking much more now about COVID than we did about police reform. We're talking much more about the economy than we did police reform, just, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago. So these things shift, right? Like, remember, remember the Bolton book? Remember, remember Jeffrey Berman? That wasn't even a week ago. You know, and, yeah. and the, 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 the cycle of this is just moves too quickly now. You got to keep the iron hot. I hear you on that point, but I also think that the sea change with regards to with regards to uh, to, to, to the polling, I mean, it suggested just support for there to be some types of reforms. I think people are really, really, really wanting to see this happen. And I mean, and just, you know, I think back to Sandy Hook and after that horrific tragedy, when there was a bipartisan consensus led by Senator Pat Toomey, one of the most conservative members in the Senate and uh, and uh, Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia. And it just seems that Congress, for no matter who's in the White House, whether it's Obama or Trump, cannot come together to pass meaningful reform anymore on issues that the public really wants to see accomplished. The public wants to see bipartisanship. And then it's like we have, you know, for whatever reason, I, let me ask the question, why do you think, whether it's Sandy Hook or whether it's George Floyd, that this does not lead to ultimate structural change? couple things. I think time is on the side of those who oppose it, right? Like that didn't get through the, got through the Senate barely, didn't get through the House. Um, with Manchin and Toomey, because if you slow it down, it'll eventually get off the front page. And that was even true before Trump. I think what I, when you talk about the police reform polling, I want to see the intensity behind that. I think very few people are going to vote or decide their vote on police reform. I think very few people have, quite frankly, in the top two of issues, um, even among you know gun control and the Second Amendment, which was certainly an issue in the 2018 cycle, the midterms. Um, that was you know everywhere. Uh, and it did pop in some districts, suburban districts like Northern Virginia, uh, New York, and a couple other areas. But even then, it was top three at most. People were not voting on this. It was a, uh, a you know a virtue signal. It allowed Democrats in many respects to go on offense with it, but it wasn't a voting issue. I think police reform is the same way. Meanwhile, I do want to get your take. Let's pivot now to 2020 politics uh, with Matt Gorman, vice president of Target of Victory, former NRCC communications director. Um, you know, the polls that are out, it shows President Trump trailing significantly to uh, Biden. Is this race over? What is the national media missing if it's not? And what does it mean for down ballot races? Well, a couple things. It's not over. Absolutely not over. I mean, look where we were in 2016. However, um, I'm going to break my own rule here. There's lessons to be learned for both parties, and they cannot use 2016 as a crutch. Republicans can't go out and say, well, the polls were wrong in 2016, Trump's going to be fine, he won in 2016, on and on and on. Democrats, this is what kind of Obama said yesterday on the fundraiser with Joe Biden, that they can't get smug, they can't get complacent. You know, they, they can't assume that Joe Biden, like they did with Hillary, was going to win. That's why, especially in urban areas, Philly and Milwaukee didn't turn out that they did. Oh, um, you cut out there. You cut out there, but you were making a good point. Go ahead. What, what were you saying, buddy? I, I was just saying that, like that's that, that's why areas like Milwaukee, areas like Philly, didn't turn out the levels that they did in 2008 and 2012. Um, and, and to the last point is, Democrats can't give in. They gave Trump a culture war in 2016. He wants it. He got it in 2016. He wants it again in 2020. Democrats really need to avoid doing that same thing again. And as for the as for the 
the trajectory in terms of the Senate potentially going to um, Democrats and flipping uh, and majority in the House for Democrats. How do you size this up? Because, again, I mean, you look at some of these battlegrounds, look at Joni Ernst in Iowa, for example, who we're going to have on tomorrow uh, at the end of the week. Uh, How do you size up that and what impact is Trump having in those battleground states? Well, you know, I think Joni Ernst did something, I think, very smart earlier in the week where she called for Teresa Greenfield, the Democratic opponent, to uh, go and, and debate her. And, and normally everyone, everyone mocks and said, well, that's a sign of you know, a losing campaign. And normally th- that, that assumption would be correct, but not in this instance, and I'll tell you why. And I think it's important across the board. It was smart and strategic for, the, for them to do it because uh, senators, Joni Ernst, Susan Collins, Gardner McSally, and all the rest, all day answer questions in the halls of Congress. And, you know, you, Kevin, everybody else can ask them any question they want. They can answer it if they want. Uh, their opponents, you know, you know, especially with COVID, because they can't even campaign, um, are not getting out there. They're not, they're not talking to the press. They're not taking stands on issues. You need to draw them out. Uh, and you need otherwise Democrats, you know, they'll just sit there and run, you know, a ton of advertisements and control the message entirely. It's important to bring these Democrats out and get them on the record on certain things. Uh, and I think that's what, uh, you know, is a, a smart move with uh, the Ernst campaign did earlier in the week. All right, what's the Bruce song for this year? Okay, it's My Father's House. It's from the Nebraska album in the mid-'80s. And the reason My Father's House, uh, because, A, you have a lot of millennials going back to their parents' house to, uh, <laughs> to ride out COVID. And number two, if, if the economy stays the way it is, a lot of people will be moving back to their father's house. Wow. Listen, I was in D.C. I went to Delco yeah. a few weekends, but I'm staying in D.C. Thank you, Matt. That's Matt Gorman, Vice President at Targeted Victory and former NRCC Communications. Does it for me, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Matt Shirley on our production side says, Darkness on the Edge of Town is the best Bruce album. He says, what else? What else is the team saying? I don't know if I can. Nick, Nick says better days. I say better days, too. All right, that's it for me. You're listening to Bloomberg. There it is, 99.1 Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.